Welcome everybody back to our Colossians uh, Bible study. Um, today we're going to continue with our look at Paul's discussion on the Christian life and our sanctified life, and uh, get into um, into the put off and put on section. Um, before we do that, why don't we open with an invocation and a prayer? In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Okay, as I mentioned here, uh, last week, we started into Paul's instructions on the Christian life on our outline here. And we did first talk about, Paul introduces us, talk, talks to us about death and life. And just let me kind of just summarize that again. Um, the main point in that section was that if, if then you have been raised with Christ. And as we discussed, this is actually a condition of reality. And uh, we talked about being raised, but then we said the Christian dies with, with Christ and then is raised with Christ. And remember, we talked about the baptismal imagery there in baptism. And then in our sanctified life, then, uh, Paul instructs to seek the things that are above. And again, this is picture language, and we talked about this is about Christ, Christ being seated at the right hand. We discussed about that one, about that, which was the almighty power of God, which Christ possesses. And then Paul finalizes that, that in this life, we set our minds on Christ and his gifts. We also talked about Christ's return and this, the motif of the now, not yet, what that means for us. We talked about in our baptism that our internal life has already been given to us then, so now we've got uh, eternal life, but it's not yet realized yet, and that won't be realized until after our death and then then the resurrection that will be be really in our eternal life at that point. And then we moved on to section, uh, it's kind of this A2 of the Christian life. We we started with the put-offs. And that is in in, uh, chapter 3, beginning with verse 5. And we went through a number of the vices, so to speak, that Paul tells us that we're to put to death or put off. Basically, that means simply do not do. We looked at a number of of those. And I believe we left off um, at verse 9. But what I'm going to do is just go ahead and reread the section of the put off section which is 3, 5 through 11, and then we'll pick up where we left off. So 3, 5 then, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. And we talked about that. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices 
and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is in all. But Christ is all and in all. Okay, so let's pick up on verse 9 then. We went through all the vices. Paul writes, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. And I'm going to go ahead and, and read 10 here too. And have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. Okay. So Paul starts, do not lie. In the Greek, it's really do stop lying. Like all the sins that we talked about in verse 5 and following then, lying is simply another expression of the old sinful way to which the followers of Jesus have died in him. So by Jesus' grace, his followers have now done two things. We have put off the old self with its sinful practices, and now... We have put on the new self. And I want to talk a little bit about the old self and the new self. We've heard that um, in, the ba- in the baptismal uh, language that we talk about. And I want to just take us to the small catechism. The small catechism does a wonderful job on the old man, new man, old self, new self. So in the small catechism, under what does baptism indicate, we learn this. It indicates that the old Adam, or the old self, or the old man, we've heard those three terms, in us should by daily contrition and repentance be drowned and die with all sins and every evil desires. And then a new man should emerge, should daily emerge and arise to live before God in righteousness and purity forever. So then we see here, baptism sets the rhythm for our daily lives as Christians. Uh, Every day, the old man emerges, new man is drowned out, and um, by reference back to our baptism. So how do we then drown our sins and our evil desires? What kind of a new person or is a a new man is God then making out of me? So let's look more about this in the small catechism. It's question 319. So then what is the old Adam? The old Adam, sometimes called the old man or the old self, refers to us fallen creatures. We have inherited a complete and total corruption of our created nature from Adam, which results in unbelief and rebellion against the Creator. Remember, we previously discussed this. This is another than original sin, right? The original or inherited sin that we have inherited from Adam and Eve when they sinned in the garden. So that's the old Adam, our inherited sin. Paul also writes about this in Ephesians 4.22. He writes, To put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and is corrupt through deceitful desires. So that's the old man. That's what Paul is talking about here then in Colossians. So the next question is, leads to what is the new man or the new Adam? 
The new man refers to us as restored creatures of God in Christ. We have been united with Christ by the washing of rebirth, baptism, then which results in a new spirit-created attitudes, desires, and actions. And Paul writes about this in 2 Corinthians 5.17 where he writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new um, has come. So then, what does this mean for us? How does baptism uh, picture what the Christian's life and daily life should look like? And the Catechism tells us, In the waters of baptism, we have been buried and raised with Christ. Therefore, we should continually resist every impulse of the old Adam. And again, this is all the vices that we've been talking about here in 3, 5 through 11, which we'll finish. So we should resist all of those vices, everything that the Ten Commandment forbids, until he is drowned once and for all when we die and then when we're resurrected. At the same time, we should continually give free reign to the new man until he rises in final victory on the last day. This is an interesting note here. The catechism brings up, and we've talked about infant baptism before here, but I want to read this. This is beautiful. So under this section still here, the catechism writes, Note, when infants were baptized in Luther's day, they were dipped down into the water and then raised up out of it providing a vivid picture of the daily drowning to sin and rising to new life that baptism signifies and actually is. And the Catechism says, then read Colossians 3, 1 through 10, which actually we're now doing. So see, this is all referenced here to what we're talking about. And notice how it describes our new life in Christ, and we'll get to that today. Luther writes, when Christians are baptized... They give ear to the gospel, read Holy Scripture, partake of Holy Communion, and love their neighbor. So then, how do we rightly use our baptism? We rightly use our baptism when we live in repentance and faith in the triune God who has made us his beloved children. And Luther writes in the, small, in the large catechism, In this way, one sees what a great, excellent thing baptism is. It delivers us from the devil's jaws and makes us God's own. It suppresses and takes away sin and then daily strengthens the new man. And it is working and always continues working until we pass from this estate of misery to eternal glory. So isn't that wonderful, this concept of the old man and the new man? And that's what Paul talks about here. In verses 9 and 10, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and then put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of the Creator. So the new self is put on, put on our baptism, and this is done daily. Old man rises, then the new man, the old man is drowned, and the new man emerges daily in our Christian life. That's a pattern. Someone brought that up last time. It was you, Barry. I'll try again then. All Um, right. (laughs) Because this word put, it it sounds like it's a directive, like it's law. And uh, if you could just comment on um, 
I know God is doing this work in us, or at least other parts of Scripture, but the, this comes across as a directive, and if you read it isolated, it almost seems like uh, it's a command, you know. I think it is. I think it is a command, and we do, we do in 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 our day in our sanctified life this is what paul's addressing here again this isn't justification okay paul's way out of that we talked about that earlier and paul writes about that but now this is the new man this is what we're to do so in our sanctified life and this again as i explained last time this is the third use of the law remember there's three uses of the law the cur the curb which is the societal rules and regulations the mirror which is the chief point of the law which is to show us our sins right and then in turn, uh, the gospel shows us our Savior. But then there is this third point of the law, and I think that this is what this is getting into. It's in our sanctified life. It's the guide, okay? And a pastor described it like this to the kids the other day in catechism. I think this is wonderful. The, the guide is like a, a, you take a ruler, and you use the ruler, and you draw a straight line. And that's the straight line we're to walk here in the third. It's the, the guide that we use in our sanctified life, and this is what Paul's addressing. So we do. We put to death all the vices, and then we put on all the virtues um, as we're going to go through in 12. So it is. It's the third use of the law. That's exactly right. But again, this is not, has nothing to do with our salvation. This is how we're to live in our sanctified life. But also, we can be comforted in is that we, when we look at the gospel on this, we don't, even in the third use, we, don't, we, we cannot live up to it. I mean, we try, and that's what Paul, but then this reference to the old man, new man, takes us back to the gospel, which is the bat, baptismal language that, you know, you are the old man is drowned. It's not what you do. This is all gift language, and this is what Christ has done for you and his death and resurrection given to you in baptism and this is all gift language. We do try these in the third use as the is the guide but we can't we can't we can't follow it to the T every day. So we look, we have to look to the gospel. Good point. Any further analysis on that or any other questions on that? Okay, so, but there's, there is also another, we talk uh, then about the old man and then the new, the new self in verse 9 and 10. In verse 10 goes on to say, then, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. What does that mean? Which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. So we know that God had first created humanity to bear his image in the Garden of Eden. That meant that humanity was to reflect God in their thoughts, words, and actions toward one another, back to God in prayer and praise and their stewardship of all creation. So originally, we can recall in the Garden, to accomplish this, God had given to humanity a sinless nature. One that was righteous and able to accomplish what God would deem as good. Remember, God said, and this is good, after he, after he created man. God is holy. In creation, especially in creating humanity, God gave to his creatures that was of him alone, what he could give. So, at their original creation, Adam and Eve, in creation, were created holy. And so, 
was to be their offspring. But, as we've talked about original sin, this nature, at least in part, was lost when Adam and Eve, through the temptation of Satan, ironically, tried to be like God by doing that which he commanded them not to do, to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So now, that image of God was destroyed. The image of God was lost then to the humanity, but in mercy, God still renews humanity. He did this uh, by sending his son, Jesus, who is the perfect image. So then being baptized into Christ, which this is talking about here, in being baptized into Christ, Christ, his faithful children are now being renewed in the image of God as we receive his grace, which bears the fruit in our lives in which we are Christ-like. So that's what Paul is meaning by here. In our baptism, the new self, we are being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator. It's restoring humanity, and that's what Christ did on the cross. Our image of God was destroyed, uh, but we have the Messiah who came and brought us back into the Christ-like image. Questions on that or anything followed up? Verse 10. Okay, so we've got the old man, the old self, new self, the image of the creator. So then Paul goes on, and this is great. So here, there, in verse 11, here, there, is not Greek and Jew, not circumcised and uncircumcised, not barbarian, not Scythian, not slave, free, but Christ is in is all and in all. So what is he saying here? Here there is not. Okay? This reverse refers to the, what we just described, where the old man has been put off and the new man has been created. So anywhere this is the create the case, old man, new man, baptism, what Paul's saying is there is no distinction. There's no Greek, Jew, circumcised, and uncircumcised. Let's talk about that. So he brings up not Greek and Jew. Of course, these are two polar opposites of each other at the time. These are two nationalities. Um, in the, when Paul says Greek, he's emphasizing the Greek culture and its high standing. He's not talking about Gentile or pagan, but any man really who was educated in the Greek culture, as opposed to the Jews who had their own separate um, they're bo- in their religion, so the Jew boasting of his divine religion, so he's putting those opposite of complete opposites of either, each other. The same with circumcised and uncircumcised, which we've talked a bunch about in this class. Again, these are opposed, polar opposites of each other. The Jews regarded circumcision as a high prerogative and something that was necessary for salvation and thought that the uncircumcised um, you know, had no salvation. So Paul's putting that, you can see it's a polarizing positions. <clears throat> and then he goes on to talk about Paul, barbarian, Scythian. A barbarian is a foreigner. That's what this means in the Greek. It's one who can really one who cannot speak the Greek language or Latin during this time. Scythian, that's just a strange term. I didn't know what that was until I looked it up. It is not simply a native of Scythia. I didn't know where that was. It's known as the Pontiac Scythia. It's a 
uh, it's a kingdom that existed sometime between the sixth and third century BC. But really, what 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 Paul's saying by this is the climax of barbarianism, a savage. Okay, so talking about every kind of spectrum here. Then he goes on to slave free. We understand those distinctions, and this was a difference that ran really through the whole world at that time during where tens of millions of people were slaves. The poor slave was looked up down upon by the free man. Okay, but really what is Paul's point here? It's this. In the gift of salvation in Christ, there is not one group more saved than another. No group more loved by God than another. In our being justified before God, He makes no distinction that might divide or set people apart in this world. Each person receives salvation equally for himself or herself, solely, what we know this, on account of what Jesus did. This grace grace gives the church a bond in Christ deeper than any of the distinctions Paul is seeing here in these verses. So really this old man, new man, our salvation has there's no distinction. Here, there is no distinction at all. No Greek, Jew, circumcised, un- uncircumcised. But, he says, Christ is all in all. So what Paul is saying here then is that in Christ is absolutely everything in the new man. And the new man doesn't matter who you are, where you come from, your nationality, all this. The new man, it's all about Christ. Um, I guess the new man alone counts here that Christ is in all in every way. And that's it. And remember we call, this is kind of again taking us back to some of the stuff we talked about on what was going on in the church of Colossae here. Now we looked in Colossians 2.16 about when Paul wrote, Therefore let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. We talked about that. And then we also talked about in Colossians um, 2.20, if, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to these regulations? So this is what Paul's coming to. Away from all these superstitions, everything that's going on in the church, these earthly elements, it's all about this. But Christ is all and in all. One commentator writes this, For all of us, Christ is the all in all ways. So it's good stuff here. So Christ is all and in all. No matter Greek or Jew, circumcised and circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. It's Christ. So that's what Paul ends this really great section with here about what we put to death talks about all the vices, but then he brings it down to the one thing that's all about Christ and what Christ has done for us. But then when he ends with that, Christ is an all and an all, then we are in Christ. Then he goes on to, now that we're in Christ, okay, to our sanctified life here, we go to verse 12. And this is where we start kind of a new section you saw him in, in verse 5, put to death, or put off. Now we're in verse 12, which starts, put on then. 
course, that means put on, do these things, which we'll go through. <coughs> so if there's not any questions to this point, I'll go ahead and read this next section then. It's uh, verses 12, 3, 12 through 17, which is the put on section. Okay. So then Paul writes, put all then, put on then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with, uh, with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with, thanks, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Isn't this great? This is good stuff here. So let's look at um, verse 12 then. Put on. So this is interesting. Put on then. What does he say? How does Paul identify, because he's speaking now to baptize believers, put on. How does Paul identify them? He identifies baptized believers, which is us, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Okay? And that's what was given to us in our, in, uh, the just, in our justification. Okay? Because if we are justified, now we are God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. So, he calls us chosen ones. We're chosen by grace in Christ. He calls us holy and beloved. Jesus is the Holy One of God. And at, remember, at Jesus' baptism, uh, he is called God's beloved. So now, because we are in Jesus through our baptism, Paul freely uses those words in reference to us. As those who have put our mindset on things above, now our lives are ref to reflect that mindset of putting on these virtues, which are not ours to accomplish, but are gifts provided by God and given to us to do. All right. So the things we are to put on listed here. Now, if you notice, when we go through this, these mostly... Uh, pertain to the second table of the law. Remember when in the Ten Commandments, our catechism, we've got the two tables of the law, one through three, our love towards God, and now four, commandments four through ten, show us our love for our neighbor. And this is kind of, a lot of this stuff is, is the second table of the law stuff in the Ten Commandments. So this is what we do all in love of our neighbor. So what are these? You can see in verse 12, first, we have compassionate hearts. One can display a heart of compassion only 
as he is willing to stoop down for the benefit of our neighbor in need. Kindness, showing kindness. We show kindness as we treat our neighbors with consideration for their feelings. Humility. We show humility only by putting ourselves beneath our neighbor. So all towards a neighbor. Meekness or gentleness here um, describes the way in which the believer is to treat our neighbor and other people. And then, and patience. Um, Likewise, we can practice patience only with those whose conduct really try our patience, right? But that's where we're to act with patience. Okay. Any questions on that? Those are pretty straightforward here. But you can see how this is all stuff that we do towards our neighbor. Verse um, 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so as you must also forgive. So, what's this saying here? Um, Our sanctified life is not lived in isolation. We live in every day, our lives, and it's also our daily lives are not lived uh, among perfect people. Okay, so we are those needing grace each day, and as followers of Jesus, we live among those needing the same gifts. Um, even as Jesus bears with our struggles of sin and has completely forgiven us by his death on the cross, our goal as his people is to also have a patient, empathetic bearing for one another. When there is a complaint of someone having sinned against another, then, like Jesus, we would forgive as we have been forgiven. This means that forgiveness among us is a free gift because the forgiveness we receive and give has already been fully paid for by Christ's death. So we've heard this before, right? Um, Forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. And we pray this. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. That's the Lord's Prayer. It's right here. So it's saying. So, the Lord's Prayer. I'm going to refer back to the Catechism. These are really good catechismic points here. The small catechism, the fifth, fifth petition, which is, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. What does this mean? We pray in this petition that our Father in heaven would not look at our sins or deny our prayer because of them. We are neither worthy of the things for which we pray, nor have we deserved them. But we ask that he would give them all to us by grace, for we daily sin much and surely deserve nothing but punishment. So we too will sincerely forgive and gladly do to those, do good to those who sin against us. Okay? That's what this saying. Um, so, does forgiveness from God depend on our ability to forgive each other? No. Catechism, no. It may appear that Jesus makes our being forgiven dependent upon our forgiving of others when he says, Forgive us as we also have been forgiven. That's in Matthew 6 12. But regarding this, the scriptures teach two complementary truths. First, God has forgiven the sins of the world solely for Christ's sake. Thus, I cannot earn forgiveness by forgiving others. 
Second, if we stubbornly refuse to forgive others, we reject God's forgiveness for them and for us. Well, this is what we do. Because we are forgiven, we forgive others. And that's what the Lord's Prayer, we pray in the Lord, Lord's Prayer. This is a good point the Catechism brings up. Does forgiveness mean that I must forgive and forget? He says <laughs> different. Forgiveness does not mean having no memory of past wrongs. But we ask our Father in heaven to free us from the anger and resentment that may accompany those memories. We relinquish them into his merciful hands and trust him for healing over time. Isn't that great? Any questions? Just a minute, Ellie. Do we have the mic here? is embarrassing to present, but I'm feeling like I'm sitting with holy, holy people, all of the rest of you. I... But we are. We're, we're, we are holy people, and you're, you're holy. <laughs> and it's not because what we do. It's what Christ says, and what's, that's what Paul tells us we are, and you are a holy person, too. But go ahead. Most <laughs> of you may find this easy to do. This is not... Swiftly washed over. Please say I'm not the only one that's... I think it's hard. And, you know, we see this in our language, don't we? Let's see. When someone harms us or something and then they come ask for forgiveness and do this, and what's usually our first response? Uh, don't worry about it. <laughs> we do. We don't just immediately say we forgive. It's hard. This is very hard to do. It is hard. I don't think that's... Uh, you know, the point of this, it is hard to do, but we do have to think about this, that Christ has forgiven us and we forgive. But as so it your, says here, we don't forgive. Your voice is so soft. I, oh, sorry. I have no idea what you're saying. Okay. But, but the issue of, of uh, forgiveness is, is, I mean, it's, you seem to be just, it'll be okay. No. <laughs> It's not, it'll be okay. Right. We have come through the wedding of a, a granddaughter, and it was painful for me because of certain elements of our family. It's not, it is not, and, and maybe your, your lives are uh, just all peaceful and harmony everywhere. Oh, I don't <laughs> think anybody's is. It's, I don't know. I find, I find it a... Uh, a, uh, I mm-hmm. I don't think that's the point of forgiveness. I mean, as it says here, it's not forgive and forget. I mean, there's always going to be hurts to it, but ultimately we are are to forgive. Does it mean that you have to let go the emory? the memories you have or the hurt feelings you have, we're still going to have those. But the question is, is do you, do you want to damn that person to hell? I don't know what you're saying. Do you, do you want to damn the person? Do you want that person to go to hell? Right? And we don't think that way. We don't really want them to go to hell. We want to forgive. You can't hear. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's as loud as I can do. 
So I know it's hard. There's still temporal. There's always temporal consequences to sin and sin to us, and we never minimize the sin that's done to us. It is hard, and that's not what we're saying here. We're not saying, "Oh, just let it go. Don't worry about it." No, we do forgive, but there are going to still be pain associated with that, and that's why we have to turn back to Christ on the cross for us, and always look at Christ on the cross. I think sometimes, <clears throat> well, <clears throat> excuse me, what has just been said by our silence, we might be reflecting on our own issues, you know, not that certainly we have issues, and the hard part for this this particular part of Colossians for me is, it is family, and we have been hurt egregiously, mm. and I don't even know if you forgive somebody if they don't want forgiveness, if they're continually on the attack, because that's the case for us. And uh, I find it in my heart that, you know, I asked Pastor once, he said the same thing. Do you want him to go to hell? <laughs> no, mm-hmm. I don't. Mm-hmm. And then I think, well, maybe I don't know. <laughs> But I know in the long run, as time passes, Christ will insert a healing of sorts. I think it's more important for me to try not and bear a grudge. And when the opportunity arises, if it does arise, forgiveness, I would offer it if it's asked for. But I don't know if a person isn't penitent or remorseful, how you forgive it. I, I don't know. Well, are we always repentant with our sins with Christ? No. Oh, does yes. Christ <laughs> Does Christ still forgive us? Yes. Yes, okay. And this is hard, but that's what we always got to refocus back on. But it's a matter of time. It is can be a matter of time. But think about all the sins we've committed against God. Every day. We don't even know the extent of our sins, okay? Our sinful nature. And what does God do with us? He forgives us. And then with that known, everything that I've done and what he's done for me, it's really hard to then turn around and not forgive someone else. I know it's hard in our human to do it and when we have real pain and anger, But we do have to always go back to the cross and what Christ did for me. My sins are so much, I I deserve nothing but eternal punishment. But when when you look at it that way about me and what I've done to God and then how he forgives me, when we try to keep it in that sphere, and we've got to, as God tells us, um, in, in, the, in the, Jesus prays in the Lord's Prayer. There's other parables. I'll be preaching on one here in a, in, in a couple weeks. It's that um, we just have to keep the focus on what we've done and how Christ has given us and then forgiven us and try to do that then to others. So if you keep it in that context of what, how we've been forgiven, we should then say, well, gosh, I'm such a, I, I should forgive this person. And even if they're not repentant, that's not a requirement. Because then it's putting on us to determine, well, we get to gauge whether they're truly uh, repentant or not. And then we're not given to do that. We're just simply given because what Christ has done for us, then we are to forgive. Is that hard? Yes, but we're to do it. Well, I kind of, um, you know, as I get older, I reflect on sins that I may not have reflected on in my youth. that, That I am then very repentant. 
And obviously, every time we say the Lord's Prayer, that just hits home. So I would think maybe time, if God allows it, would insert that ability. I'm hoping. And certainly time also helps with the personal pain and, and that we feel, right? And I think that can still go on after there's forgiveness. That's, that's, I don't think that we can say, well, you know, this person has hurt me, so automatically I forgive them and all the pain's going to go away. That's not what's going on here. But we do. We forgive those as Christ has forgiven us. But then we will still have pain. But then that's what we pray. Pray for continued comfort um, from Jesus and, 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 and to relieve us of the personal bad feelings that we have. But I do think it's, it, it is incumbent upon us that as Christ has forgiven us, we forgive others. And that's what Paul's saying here. That's what Jesus says. There's parables that Jesus uses this uh, to tell us that it's something we can do, that we have to do, is forgive others. Uh, I think we have to think about the other factor here is, is the consequences. Uh, there may be forgiveness uh, that we strive to, to give, but that doesn't change the consequences. Um, right. There, there are things that have occurred in the, in the relationship that may have destroyed the relationship. As a, you may not be able to have uh, any kind of a relationship or a limited one, depending on, with that person, but that doesn't mean there isn't forgiveness. Uh, you may not be, you know, I can't, you know, I can't deal with that person. I can't. I got to avoid this person. That doesn't mean you're unforgiving. That's a good point. Um, I think we confuse those two, and the person who thinks, "Well, you're not forgiving me," doesn't doesn't grasp then the consequences of what that person has done, and so they think you're unforgiving when what they've done has destroyed your ability to have a relationship with them, or what you had before, or anything in between. Depending on what it was. And that's a perfect Uh, distinction, right? uh, Forgiveness doesn't say once you forgive, then everything's going to be fine between you and I have a perfect relationship. No, it's a different thing. I think of the comparison of uh, the bank robber who has uh, stolen the bank, but the money from the bank and hid it well, but he's captured. And the pastor goes to the prison cell and... uh, discusses with him what he's done and he offers his, his oh, I, I'm really sorry for what I've done. And the pastor says, well, uh, then, uh, have you returned the money? Uh, well, no. Well, um, you need to think about that. <laughs> right. Well, that, that is an important distinction. Look at the, look at even for us, sometimes we commit, commit, well, I'm not saying maybe for us, but just, you know, someone does a heinous crime or something, right? And they are put in jail, and they're going to sit in jail for a long time. They can be, they're forgiven, right? I mean, if they have a repentant heart and they, they ask for forgiveness, and they, they are indeed forgiven, but that doesn't mean that there's not tem- temporal consequences. That doesn't mean that they're just going to be released for prison. No, they're going to sit in prison, so... That's right. And I think we can apply that to others. So we do forgive, but that doesn't mean that there's not other temporal consequences, you know. So I think that's a good point. I was going to add that uh, there's one important point. I think God looks at us, and he, 
where he says we are to forgive, he's, he's viewing that for our good because when someone sins against us, first, call, first response is anger. But then if it stays there, it becomes this bitterness or a root of bitterness that the Bible says. And I think God says to forgive for our good also. So we sh- I think we should keep that in mind. I think there is somewhat of a healing component to that, right? We've forgiven, and that maybe can help us to, because it, you know, if it, it just continues to consume you, that's not good for you either. There was a fellow that I used to work with, and he said, uh, things rent their space out in your mind. And, <laughs> and that's, you know, why should you give vacancy in, the, you know, in your mind space to something that is not healthy? Uh, so anyway, it's, it's a, unforgiveness is, is that root of bitterness, I think, can happen. One more thing I would add is that I think it's a process. With God, it's not a process. When you ask for forgiveness, he forgives immediately, and it says your sins are remembered no more. As far as the East and the West, yeah. they've been separated from. But, but we're not God. We don't have that ability since we are sinful beings our forgiveness becomes a process that we have to work through because of our sinful nature in itself we're not just equipped to be able to forget it as god does even though that would be the ideal that we should but we begin by offering that forgiveness and going through the process of acting it out even though we have this problem with relationship. That's another issue and consequence. And we continue to pray, right? Pray. Pray for God to help us with that. Um, I think when you started the on the verse 12, the put-ons, you said they're not ours to accomplish, but given to us. Was that right? Well, yeah, I think these are, these are part of, in our sanctified life, with it now that we are, um, we are justified in our sanctified life. The things we do, they are kind of uh, the fruit of our, uh, of, of our sanctified life that's given to us through the Holy Spirit. And this is what, how we can do then their truly good works because it is the fruit of our faith. And, and this is what then our faith leads us to do, to have compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And it's when it's done in the sanctified life, that's when it's truly kindness kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Without faith, you can try to do these things, but they're really not good works. They're not, they're not done as a result of our justification. So I think that's the difference there. These are gifts that we do when we, act, when we have compassionate hearts, kindness. It's the gifts. It's the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's the genuous of our faith flowing then towards love, towards our neighbor. discussion. Okay. All righty. Let's move on here. So we talked about um, forgiving others as the Lord has forgiven you. You must also forgive. Okay, we cover that. Uh, Verse 14 then. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. So the highest thing to put on is love. And why is that? 
So I think this is interesting. Paul's using the imagery of putting off and putting on. Some commentators think this. I think this is really cool. And the study note says this too. Uh, the imagery of putting off and putting on as in garments of clothing. Or even the imagery of removing the rags of our sinfulness and being clothed with Christ's robes of righteousness as in baptism. So we can kind of see this imagery of clothing. Love then... Maybe a little cheesy, but I still think it's cool. Love, then, is like the belt that holds the outfit, all the other Christian virtues together, right? That's kind of the imagery I think some say. Love here is just not this sentimental emotion. Love is the summation of the essence of the Christian virtue, the things that we put on. And Paul writes about this in two different places. In Romans 13, 9, Paul states, For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. And then Galatians 5.14, For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. Um, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So the New Testament use of this love here. It's this highest of love. It's agape in the Greek. And this is the same word that John uses when he writes, God is love. So this is what this is. Love then holds everything together um, on the virtues that we do. Questions on that? Follow up. Um, I've always struggled with love someone else as you love yourself. But I thought loving yourself was was pride and that was a sin so Mm -hmm. how how do we reconcile that uh yes uh love others as god has loved you oh better okay i think that's probably the better i like that that's more others as god or christ as christ loved you as he uh, nailed to the cross on your behalf out of love Sacrificial. sacrificial there you go sacrificial love perfect yeah Good point, though. Yep. And again, these are hard. I know these are hard things, but this is what we're given to do. And, you know, we, uh, in, in our sanctified life, these are the, the gifts that the Holy Spirit gives us to do. doesn't mean we do them all the time, right? And that's not what Paul's saying here. But this is what we, 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 we do um, as the guide then we, for living our sanctified life. It comes down to love. And when we don't have love, we see everything else fall apart. I think that's the point here. Okay, let's go on to 3.15. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So peace, let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. The meaning of peace here, when you look at the the Greek and go back, takes you back to the Hebrew, actually. And we've heard the Hebrew word, shalom. And that's the peace here. And it's the state of the shalom, then, is the status of having a right relationship with God by His grace. Okay, that's, that's what shalom means. And that's what this term here is. A right relationship with God by His grace. And, you know, we hear this in the air, uh, the Aaronic benediction comes from Numbers 6, 24 through 27. The Lord bless you and keep you. 
The Lord make his face shine to you, upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is God's peace, summarizes the blessings of God's gracious favor, protection, uh, in light from his face, in conjunction with God placing his name on his people. That's what this peace is. Peace denotes that the enmity caused by human sin has been replaced by harmony in Christ's death on the cross. That's what this peace is. Um, peace. Then it says peace, the peace of Christ then. So peace here in this, is in the, 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 looking at it from the shalom, meaning peace of Christ. The peace of Christ then is the peace... Uh, with God that Christ gives us through faith. So that's the peace, peace of Christ here. So let this peace of Christ then, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This is kind of interesting. The, the, the study note uh, says this, and it's also some com- other commentators here. So th- let this rule in your heart, this peace rule in your heart. This comes from a Greek word, Brabuto, it's a term used for either judging and law courts, and this is interesting, and in athletic competitions. So it's really to act as an umpire. So the peace of Christ is to either referee, umpire, or adjudicate um, within us, in our heart. This is a reference to the entire being. Um, and then you were, you were called, called by the gospel, which is grace. That call, which made you one body of true Christians, gave you the peace of Christ, which is ever to assure you of your salvation. So what does this mean here, really? To have the peace of Christ rule in our hearts brings us to the assurance of our own salvation, even in the midst of trials of this sinful world. And it is the same gift we've been given to extend to fellow believers of Christ, the church. And then it's and then Paul concludes three fifteen, and be thankful. So, this is a quote from uh, Linsky's a Lutheran commentator. This kind of sums this up and be thankful. This three fifteen. So he writes, indeed, who would not be ever and ever thankful to have Christ's peace acting the umpire in his heart assuring him and the whole body of Christians of the prize of being true Christians, elect of God, saints, and beloved ones. So I thought that was a good, good summary there to 15. All right, we've got a couple more minutes. Let's see if we can, let's see if I can wrap this up here, unless there's any other questions. So verse 16 here. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. So the word of Christ could be translated in the Greek, the word about Christ, which is the word of Christ. So really the word of Christ, Christ is the center and chief content of the word which is to be preached and taught in the church. So let this word, the word about Christ, dwell, let dwell. It's a kind of a present tense, imperative verb. So it points to this con- continued presence of the word dwelling in you. 
So this word of God is not merely to be read or heard and coldly noted, it is to be internalized and filled up, fill up every aspect of our lives. God's word is to have a continual presence in our daily lives. We are to live with it and it with us, and so it shapes everything about us. Thus Paul encourages, let the word of God dwell in you richly. So God's word dwelling within us richly does not only carry a quantitative meaning, how much his word fills you, but qualitative, how well his words fills you as well. The richness of God's word as it gives us the good news of salvation in Christ, which is the gospel, brings wonderful benefits to us. And that's what Paul's point is here. And then 3.16, he goes on to say, So let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We talked about wisdom before. Uh, Christ restores wisdom by his cross, as his death provides redemption of sin. Thus the divine wisdom of Christ is equivalent to forgiveness and righteousness. So then we teach and admonish one another in all wisdom by, and this is very interesting, Paul says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs will thankfulness in your hearts to God. So an aspect of the, this dwelling, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, where does this find expression in our rhythm of worship? And we've talked about that a couple times in this class. Here God's word is proclaimed. His grace is imparted through word and sacrament. And his people respond through the music of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. So sacred music, I think this is pointing to sacred music. Most commentators agree. Sacred music, as Paul cites here, brings both an aspect of proclaiming God's word as well as equipping God's people to respond in praise. And think about how rich our hymns are in our LSB. I mean, this, is, this is what it's about, right? This, they teach us um, and instruct us beautifully in our Lord's doctrine, correct doctrine, in a form that is readily memorized and therefore easily retain. And then with thankfulness in your heart, to conclude this, 316, notice how thankfulness is even a Christian virtue that is lived out in the context of other people's lives. If I am thankful for salvation in Jesus, I not only give him thanks in my prayers, but I joyfully share with others why I have a grateful spirit. Okay, so we're about at, out of time here right at noon. Any other questions or anything on that? One more here. Quickly. Just a comment about singing and singing psalms and so forth. Right. I think we sometimes don't appreciate the importance of that. Um, and I'd like to make a, a recommendation. Uh, we're always short of people in the choir. And um, also, um, I'd just like to, a little commercial for uh, the Concordia Christmas concert coming up, first week in December. Right. Uh, I will not be on stage this time, I'll be in the audience, but come and listen, this is going to be a great concert. All right, good, good liturgical hymns, huh? Yeah, our hymnody is so awesome, and so thanks for that. Okay, thank you everybody, Lord be with you. <laughs>